Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day that brings us all together. Your hosts, Boo and Sean. Welcome back, listeners, to the Few Podcast. Very excited by today's guest because we're going to explore a topic that's uh, pretty close to to my heart. To most people, if you've got any self awareness about you, we're going to be talking a little bit about imposter syndrome, some human centricity, a bit of leadership. A characteristic that is uh, being sorely tested during these difficult times. Uh, so how are you, Shawnee? You must be uh, looking forward to, to today. You get excited by this sort of stuff. Absolutely, mate. No, really looking forward to hearing our guest uh, dive deep into very different elements of leadership, different perspectives, because we always learn something from these conversations. So yeah, really looking to get stuck in. Absolutely. We've got a bit of a TED Talker on uh, on the line today as well. So let's make him welcome. Peter Shepard, Pete, thanks so much for being on The Few with Sean and myself today, mate. Welcome, mate. Thank you for having me, Tim. Great to be here and, and meet you both. So I feel like I'm talking to John Laws a little bit here. You know, I think we're sounding like a couple of uh, 13-year-olds, Sean, with the pizza dulcet tones coming over the podcast. Yeah, so we've definitely got tone envy going on, I think. So. <laughs> it's all the mic, I promise. <laughs> yeah, so tell us a bit about Mr. Dark uh, before we get started, Pete, and how, how he obviously uh, shaped your career as a, as a podcaster. Mr. Duck, yeah, I was sharing just before we hopped on. In, in year seven, my teacher, my English teacher, Mr. Duck, kicked me out of the room for probably the third time that week and came out to confront me and said, now, Pete, you're so annoying and you're just so distractive. You're making everyone else's learning experience a lot harder. One day, maybe you'll make a great radio host, but right now, could you just shut up? <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he nailed it and, and here you are uh, today. So let's get straight to the point. Uh, tell us a little bit about imposter syndrome. I mean, I, I've kind of moved into this mentoring, coaching space and advising mm-hmm. people, and I never really experienced it too much before as a, as a business owner. But I tell you what, nowadays, I'm just like, what is it about what I'm saying here that, that people would really be interested in? It's not that big a deal. Mm-hmm. What got you excited by imposter syndrome? Well, many things. I think it's a, it's a fascinating topic because it's one of those things in my experience that almost everyone that I've talked to has experienced it on some level and most people don't realize that everybody else experiences it. So it's sort of like this universal shared experience that no one ever talks about or admits to. And so I've spent a lot of time, a lot of energy and, and done a lot of talks on what it looks like to think about imposter syndrome, what it looks like to admit that we're all imposters, but then why it comes about and then how do we how do we navigate it like if this is a universal experience what is it that some people are able to do to either quieten that voice or sort of dance with that voice versus those who kind of get put off by it or succumb to it or overcome by it so yeah that's sort of the 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 main excitement has really been around this realization that it's universal and we don't really talk about it that much and actually it could be i think a good thing so we can reframe it as a sign that we're growing we're stretching we're doing something new which you sort of mentioned even in teeing up that question, Boo. What does it look and feel like when you are experiencing imposter syndrome? Because if people are not talking about it and it's not really labelled as an experience, 
which you know I'm fully acutely aware of it. There's been a number of podcasts that uh, we've had where we've afterwards it was either Boo or I that said, oh, "Man, I was so out of my depth," and I'm like, "I thought you were. The, I thought I was the only one," because <laughs> we were like, "Whoa!" We went into some political place, and another one was. Uh, based on around racism and it was just like whoa man we really felt out of our depth that i guess that was a feeling for me but how would you describe it for someone who really hasn't got that clarity that's a great example and i think it's that that feeling of being a like a fraud or a phony or that that worry that someone's going to find you out and go how did you get here and why are you talking about this thing and who who put you in charge it's sort of that discomfort or or doubt that we have about our situation so i think that it manifests in many different ways for me it's often who are you to say that thing or who are you to be on the few podcast or who are you to deliver this keynote on imposter syndrome that's sort of the the kinds of things that come up for me but it, it's it sort of varies to each individual but it's usually this undercurrent of who am i to do this thing oh, and what's driving that do you think there's an underlying emotional fear or something that's driving that what do you feel is then creating that sensation that we're getting that, that and, the, and there process. must be a point in life where that transfers right because when you're a kid or you're young and you're in a job you've got no issues with imposter syndrome because you, you don't know anything you're just in do mode never really struggled with it before but now it just becomes as i get older more and more of a thing what kind of happens so my assertion on this is that it usually comes about when we're doing something that we've never done before so in that sense, we are literally imposters because we might be delivering a keynote for the first time or talking about a book for the first time or recording a podcast on a topic that we've never talked about for the first time. So it's actually by definition, okay, the reason I feel like an imposter is because I'm doing something I've never done before. So once we can get clear in that, it's like, okay, cool. So that's actually a good thing because it means if I'm someone who's growth-minded and seeking challenges and seeking to change, I can actually use that as a guide to go, okay, cool. So this is the sign, that fear, that doubt, that insecurity, that voice of the imposter. That's a sign. Okay, I'm in a, I'm in a growth zone. I'm in a stretch zone. I'm doing something I've never done before. And if you extend that further, I mean, what that means really is any thought leader you've admired, any entrepreneur, any book author, or anyone who's done anything like walking on the moon for the first time was by definition an imposter in some capacity the first time they did it. To me, it's been very relieving to realize that the people that I admire, oh, they're imposters too. They just figured out what to do with it. Fortunately, they selected fighter pilots to be the first men on the moon and there's no issues with that, you know, with those sort of <laughs> egos in the room. So, Do you have imposter syndrome about your theories on imposter syndrome? Yeah, all the time. Like It's very meta when you say, so what is it about people that makes them feel like an imposter? I say, well, this is what I observe, which is it's usually when we're doing something for the first time. And as I'm saying that, there's this voice in the back of my head that's going, what if it's not though? What if you've done it many times and you still feel like an imposter? So it's, it's constant. I think that's a different thing though. It's not really imposter syndrome. It's, as you said, we're actually at that point in time when it's new, we are an imposter. But if you continue to feel that in the same situation over and over, it's a different issue. I think it's probably coming from something much deeper or a self-doubt or you know maybe one of those areas. But, but it's good to get that positive spin on the fact that if you're someone who feels and is actually an imposter, often it means you are chasing growth. You are driving forward to develop and evolve yourself very, very quickly. Yeah, well, I love that. Fairly recently, there was a great article about someone trying to reframe imposter syndrome to be imposter experience, which is, to your point, Sean, it's, it's not really a syndrome if it's coming about when we actually are an imposter. It's mm. actually an experience we're having very intentionally or very 
obviously because we are an imposter. So it's sort of just like it's an emotion or a feeling. And I'd much rather I'd much rather have a conversation with you and go, hey, you know what I did today? I was an imposter twice today. I would get my first, yeah. you know, keynote and I did this podcast where I had no freaking idea where this topic was going and it was awesome. You know, it's like yeah. putting a positive spin on it is such a uh, such a refreshing approach. And there's there's a real human element to that, isn't there? Because you can imagine a CEO at a, at a multinational and when you talk to these guys, they feel it. But can you imagine them getting up in front of the company and go, okay, team, look, I'm feeling like a bit of an imposter today. Uh, the social norms don't allow it. So you, you say imposter syndrome, not necessarily a bad thing, Pete. We explored it a bit mm. there. So how do we harness it for good? Well, I think there's a, like a framework I talked about on the TEDx stage is based on this idea of dancing with it. One of my mentors, Seth Godin, has talked a lot about dancing with fear. And I've sort of extended that metaphor to be, can you dance with your imposter? Because what it usually does is it seeks to lead the way. So I've, I've came up with this idea of the imposter two-step, which shockingly involves two steps. The first of which is to just acknowledge and give it a voice. So you can ask yourself, what's my imposter saying to me? We sort of talked about that just before. Well, it's saying that who are you to do this thing? You're not qualified to do that thing. So actually acknowledge it, either write it down or just sort of say it to a friend. And recognize that. And then the second step is kind of the, okay, and the so what? So what am I going to say back? I'm going to say, well, that's great, Pete, because that means you're in an area of growth. And so just like having that almost mental script or actual literal script, if you've written it down, to remind yourself when those thoughts come, okay, that's the, that's the imposter seeking to lead the way. So what am I going to do? I'm going to like do the two-step and I'm going to respond to it by going, just a reminder, that means you're in a growth zone. That's great please continue. So the way I've thought about it is, can you come up with a framework that is simple and easy to remember, i.e. the imposter two-step? And and that's worked for me and worked for many, many organizations and leaders and to your point, CEOs that I've, I've spoken with in the past. I love that two, uh, the two steps because anything more than two, my tendency to go squirrel tends to kick in and I, and I, and I can't, <laughs> can't seem to retain it beyond that. <laughs> so when you were, um, you talk about human-centric leadership and I've got a pretty simple theory, really, which is it doesn't matter what you do, what business you're in, what product you're selling. It's all the same. It's the people, the skills, and how they deploy whatever it is you're doing. And the better you do that together, the better those outcomes are. So how do you define human-centric leadership? I agree with exactly what you just said, Boo. And I would think about it as previously folks have talked about hard skills versus soft skills. And in most management circles or old school leadership circles, those soft skills are sort of poo-pooed a little bit. So things like empathy, things like decision-making, things like generosity and communication and storytelling, these really fundamental parts of the human experience have unfortunately been sort of indoctrinated into people in the past to be, oh, they're the soft skills. We don't worry about those too much. We're here to focus on the hard skills. And what I think human-centered leadership is doing, which is becoming more and more common as an approach and as a, as a philosophy to, to talk to leaders about, is actually trying to help people see the hard skills you can learn. Like you can learn how to record a podcast or edit a podcast. Like that hard skill, that can be trained and learned. That's fine. Actually, the more important thing to your point, Boo, regardless of what business, is can you enroll others in a change? Can you generously serve the people in your team? Can you understand what it's like to walk in the shoes of your customer? That to me is what it means to be a human-centered leader, to actually think more generously, more empathetically, more openly about the people in your orbit, but also the people that you're serving, i.e. your customers. One of the things that I just picked up from that too is that with the hard skills, you can outsource those, 
right? Totally. You can't outsource the soft skills. And with what I do, your mentorship and working very closely with many businesses in my inner circle group, getting to know them, the number one issue they have every single time is leadership. And in leadership, it's your inability to communicate. And their inability to communicate is because their soft skills suck. It's yeah. a global vacuum. Like, honestly, <laughs> everything comes back to shit leadership if it doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. And so to go back to the soft skill, the phrase that Seth Godin taught me, which I've been running with is, can we reframe those as actually real skills? So they're, they're the real skills of leadership. They're not soft. They're not unimportant. Soft is a derogatory term for it. Exactly. So we need to reframe those, which is a lot, what a lot of my work is all about. Yeah. So how is it being received? When you start to reframe that, start to talk to people, how are people receiving this new way of, of approaching the real skills, the real human skills? Is that being received well? Is it being understood? Is there resistance? You know, I suppose it depends on the environments you walk into. Yeah, totally depends on the environment. But for the most part, I would say, like I gave a, a talk last week on, on a few examples of real skills and the feedback was more or less, it was a breath of fresh air. Is We get so many people in training that come in here and talk to us about how to do this hard skill, how to think about this particular product line that we're trying to sell. And very few people actually coming in talking to us about what does it mean to be a leader that cares about their team? What does it mean to be a salesperson who thinks empathetically about what's going through the customer's mind? I don't think it's new. It's probably just a different spin on pre-existing you know, thoughts and philosophies and ideas. But for whatever reason, it seems to be perceived as a bit of a breath of fresh air in my experience that people are thinking more and talking more about human-centered leadership skills. And I think off the back of something like a global pandemic, people are realizing, oh yeah, that's right. I was more empathetic over the last year and that was super helpful for the way that I led my team. So it sounds like it was a weird thing to say. One of the positives to come from a pandemic has been, I think, this reality that we've seen into other people's homes, literally, and we've actually held space for one another. We've talked more about how you're going, how you're feeling, checking in on what it's like to be you. That's all about human-centered leadership. So I think it's being more well-received off the back of the heels of a, and still in the midst of a pandemic. And it's the one thing that's never changed, right? When I was a kid, I read prolifically around empires, whether it was the Spartans, the Persians, you name it, right? It was interesting because- when you look back through life, the hard skills have evolved and changed. You know, no one puts horseshoes on horses anymore, right? No one makes swords out of bronze. So that always changes. But the one constant has been the way people are together. The natural leaders, the village fire, the tribes, the, the warlords, the emperors, the kings, the monarchy. The way people work together has never changed. People have always been influenced the same way. There's always been sales and marketing. Those soft skills are like the one constant, yet they do seem to be the second tier when it comes to running a business. It's yeah. about features and benefits. It's about widgets. It's about this. Okay, here's the question. How do you get more buy-in deeper in an organization around these human skills? Because there's a certain group that buy into it. And then mm. it's just touchy-feely bullshit. You don't need that stuff. Oh. What we need to do is sell more harvesters, more machines. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that's the challenge that I have as a facilitator, as a leader, as a coach, as a, as a speaker is can you help them see it by actually putting it into action? So when I do a keynote, I'm not interested in talking at people for 45 minutes. I have no slide deck. I'm not going to lump a bunch of theory on you. I'm actually going to try and help leaders understand a skill like how to be more empathetic or how to be more curious or how to be more coach-like and then actually break out for 10 minutes and literally practice that skill have an experiential learning moment where they go, 
okay, now I can understand why that's important and how that applies to my work because I just put it into action. I've had a, a bunch of previous experience and work in in higher education and learning experiences. And so I'm trying to blend sort of learning experience with coaching, with speaking to actually help leaders, not me have to convince them, but actually help them put it into action, which hopefully convinces them by way of osmosis. Yeah, one of the things that I've observed for about six years now since I was involved on the board of the Sydney Montessori School that my kids are at for over three years, one thing I picked up a lot, which I didn't realize I was doing anyway, naturally, was the whole concept of experiential learning and the fact that that's actually how we learn, right? We don't actually learn by someone standing up the front and going blah, 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 and us doing a, a B, C or D. I'll just pick C because usually that's a pretty good good opportunity to get it right, you know, whatever. Or when you go to an, an event or something and there's a, just a, literally a talking head going blah, 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 blah at you and you walk off and go, yeah, that was all right. But then 20 minutes later, you forget most of what they actually said. So that whole concept, I think there's a big shift uh, in the space. So obviously, as a speaker myself, and Bill would know this too, uh, running the Afterburner program, it's very experientially based. And the value people draw from that experience through learning is so much more impactful. But and that kind of was digressing uh, off the path a bit. What came up for me when you were talking before, Pete, was, and I'm not going to call them hard skills anymore, I'm going to call them technical skills. So there's real skills and there's technical skills because now the soft has been removed, the hard doesn't seem to make sense. And for me, it identified something that I always talk about in what I speak on, which is the doing versus being. So the technical skills is what you do. The real skills are what you are, who you are. It's a being state. And I think if people understand the difference, you don't have to do the human skills or the real skills, that's part of your being. You know, it's an extension of you just showing up. And I think that's where people need to work on things like their EQ and emotional intelligence. Where do you think that factors into people becoming more skilled at this area of actually real human-centered communication and leadership? I totally agree. I mean, I love that you came up with that sort of like technical skill and real skill on the fly. I think that's perfect. Not only is it, to Boo's point earlier, is it historically been that these real skills have always been important, but if you think about projecting forward where there's technologies like AI, artificial intelligence that are becoming more and more prevalent and things like cryptocurrencies that are taking over the finance world, the hard skills, hard skills of knowledge and understanding, these are being taken over by computers. And so what's going to become more important? How do we differentiate ourselves? Well, it's creativity, it's human-centered leadership, it's all of these ideas that we've been talking about that are continuing to become more important, who we are, who we are being. I love that, Sean, as opposed to what we are doing because computers are a lot better at doing most of the things that humans are trying to do at the moment. Yeah, I think that's where the why equation just is going to become more and more prevalent in context. Real leadership is creating context, I think. Mm -hmm. And behind the context, you can drive the activities and the activity can either be human-based up until the point it can be automated. And AI, you know, someone was explaining this to me, intelligence isn't context. Intelligence isn't awareness. Intelligence is a technically smart capability, but the human is still going to need to provide the context for that machine or outsourcing that work to deliver an outcome. And, and this is where thinking is going to become so much more important and structured thinking. And it's super interesting, particularly with digital disruption. Humans aren't really designed to figure out what digital disruption is. They don't really know the true power of this technology. It's like, oh, well, how can, how can I design what we do today in a computer word? And it's like, well, you don't need to worry about what you're going to do with your 60 bookkeepers in the company because that role no longer exists. So we don't come at it that way. 
but there's a lot of human emotion attached to that. What are your thoughts, Pete, around this digital transformation? People who are going to be no longer required, the, the farrier that used to shoe the horses. How do leaders kind of start to manage this new world in that context? Have you any sort of thoughts on that? Might be not within your swimming lane, but it's it's kind of where this leads to at the end of the day as leaders is human design. How do we manage that journey? And, you know, you might not have a bookkeeper in the future, but you may have an AI and an analyst or a role that doesn't exist. I mean, this is, to me, seems to be the next great frontier of humanity, the information age, you know, the automation age. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's a great question and a fascinating one because I think, you know, the example of the, the people building horseshoes was a great one because it's not that those people just sat around and ceased to do anything. As humans, they innovated and they figured out what their role might be now that someone else can do that. Now that the machine can do that, okay, so I need to focus my energy and my skills on this instead. So I think there will be roles, jobs, ways of using our humanness that we can't even like comprehend at this point in time. And I have no idea what that will look like because we don't know what the technology is going to look like, which will ultimately shape how the humans interact with it. So I, I think it's firstly an acknowledgement of, yes, it's coming. Secondly, an acknowledgement that we've, like we've talked about with this whole conversation, that if I focus on as a leader, setting my, my team up for success and helping them see that they too can be leaders who are focusing on these real skills of leadership, then that's going to put me in a better position to be able to adapt, not if, but when technology gets to the point where it's taking over certain parts of my role. So I didn't quite specifically, I know, answer your question with like the golden goose answer, but or the golden egg answer, but I think there is, it's articulating and highlighting even more the importance of things like creativity, things like emotional intelligence, things like how do you enroll others in change because change is coming and change is, well, ever present. I think what you just said then, Pete, is just, again, got me thinking, okay, well, you talk about you know, the, the horseshoe maker and he goes, oh, well, let me uh, innovate, let me shift, let me, uh, for a COVID favourite word, pivot to, do, to doing something else. And to me, when I look at the technical skill, they can be quite isolating because that person making a horseshoe is there going tap, tap, tap. The person doing data entry on a computer is going tap, 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 tap. They're very, very isolated in what they're doing. And I believe that we've got a huge opportunity now to really exponentially grow creativity, innovation, things like that. Because as soon as you get a few people together with some time to talk about things, that's where ideas are created. So if we're doing less of the the doing work and the technical work and doing more of the thinking and more of the brainstorming and masterminding with other people and trying to figure new things out, that's going to help to even more quickly create new ideas, new ways of doing things, you know, improvements to some of the, the world's biggest problems as well and solutions for those because people don't have their head stuck in this very, very tunnel vision doing role anymore. I think there's a huge opportunity. The thing I take from that is the importance of community and the importance of working together as opposed to in isolation. It reminds me, one of my, my clients is a very, very brilliant change maker and in the social change kind of space. And he was part of a, a program with the Michelle and Barack Obama Foundation and went to Malaysia and watched Barack give a keynote essentially. And I was inclined to pick his brain and from him, what, what did Barack say? What was some of the wisdom? Like, what was your takeaway? One of the stories he shared was, or the messages that Barack Obama had for all of these brilliant, brilliant change makers right around the Asia Pacific region was, I being Barack, I was the most heavily resourced human being on the planet 
for eight years, at least of the free world. I had all access to all the resources that I wanted and all the people at my disposal. And even still, I couldn't get across the line all of the change that I wanted to make. So this myth that you think you can change the world alone, this idea that you're going to sit on your own on a computer with no one else around is just that. It's a myth. We have to work together. You have to find the others. You have to open the walls a little bit or lower the walls a little bit to actually collaborate with one another. That's the way forward, not doing all these things in isolation. So yeah, I thought that was a, a, a fun story example of what you described, Sean. So why is the world tending away from all of this insight and lessons? Why are we finding ourselves at probably the most fractious period in history? Is this because of the, the 10% of psychopaths that have no issue with imposter syndrome and just drive their agenda and they're the experts at everything? This is something I'm just really starting to, it's like thinking about the universe. It's like, totally. I can't even go there anymore because my brain overheats. Now, the next one is like, why is everyone being a dickhead at the moment in terms of geopolitical leadership? Like what's, what the mm. hell's going on, do you reckon? I, I mean, I think a global pandemic doesn't help where everyone is forced to isolate as opposed to congregate in communities and as groups of humans like we are hardwired to do. I don't think that helps. I actually wonder if that's the reality, to your point, Boo. Are we more fractured? Are we more divided or is the technology that people are using i.e social media painting a picture that makes it seem that way have we not always had differences have we not always had disagreements have we not always had people that are somewhat crazier than others it's just that it's so much more on display so it makes us think or tells ourselves that we tell ourselves a story that it's everywhere but also that the media and whether it's social media or mainstream media or whatever it is will always focus on the one percent that's interesting and not the 99 percent that's normal and okay and you know they're always going to focus on the shit that's a really good point actually i'm, I'm going to share this because it just happened this morning I'm, i watch movies in the car i turn the screen off i listen to it right and one of the there's like espn does this 30 for 30 kind of documentary on certain things and it was this story about fantastic lies and what it was it was a, a stripper that was invited to a university lacrosse team's house party and then accused three of them of raping her, right? And it was this example of trial by media. And it was like 280 days of, of media torching the university team and the individuals. And the long story short was nothing happened. It was just a completely fraudulent story. It was really interesting because they were interviewing journalists. And the journalists were saying, as soon as we figured out it was a lie, and it came out in court, the DNA evidence was doctored, right? And... The journalists were talking and said when it was just stark and clear that it didn't happen, they had to retreat and go, why on earth did we get on board with this? How did we report this foregone conclusion? And they spoke to the journalists and one of the journalists had been a victim of sexual abuse when she was younger and she thought this was a sexual abuse story. So her belief structure drove her behavior. Another one was a, a journo in uh, this socially challenged part of America. So for her, it was very much a race issue. So everyone abandoned their independence and the whole thing became this heavily fueled, belief-driven feedback. Oh, and the, and the DA, who was prosecuting the case, he was trying to get elected. So he needed a social cause and he turned it into that. And then literally within 30 minutes of it actually going to trial, it was blown out of the water. Because I'm super fascinated by belief structures, right? And how, how we make, make all these decisions based on beliefs. So, Pete, do you reckon if we have these beliefs and we find social media and we've got the angel on this side and the devil on that side, that's where we seem to be seeing this extremism. And this is where we're not connected physically as a community. We are uber connected 
digitally as a community and we create these digital villages. But I think the algorithms drive that too, that the more you look at, the more it's going to expose you to the same stuff that you're looking at. So it's going to, it's going to narrow your viewpoint to support your belief system. We're all living in our own little confirmation bias world and each one is so unique because of our experience with the algorithm. There's a, a great documentary, I'm sure you've all heard of it, The Social Dilemma on Netflix, which explores some of this. But one of the takeaways I really liked as a way to visibly see how this is interacting with society or how this is impacting society is swap phones with someone, your loved one, a partner, a friend, and go on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and just see how different the experience is in terms of the content being pushed to you, the beliefs that are being presented to you. And then you extrapolate that over the amount of people that are using these platforms. You start to go, oh, I see. We're all living in our own echo chamber. This is kind of wild. It is scary, isn't it? With imposter syndrome pushing yourself with checks and balances, like there's a degree of awareness there. How do we achieve that awareness and this digital human consciousness? I don't know whether we fully know what it is yet. I still think we're trying to come to terms with it, what that community looks like. But with the leadership hat on here, how do we embrace this digital world for good, not for bad? I'm not sure if this answers your question, but I think this highlights to me the importance of a leader surrounding themselves with other leaders who are willing to generously challenge them and provide feedback and accountability and new perspective that the moment we have a leader who is living in an echo chamber, whether that be digital or physical, and has people that are surrounding them as what they you know, often call yes men, which is I just say yes to whatever the boss says because that's a great idea because I don't want to get in trouble. That's not even in a digital environment. You're creating a real world echo chamber where no one is willing to challenge you. Now, there's been enough research and studies and papers out there on the benefit of having a coach, having a mentor, having someone challenge you, having someone ask you questions and hold space and and actually working together to the Barack Obama example to challenge your beliefs in a way that helps us create a better solution for something. So I think it just highlights again the idea of surround yourself with people who are willing to challenge you in a generous and generative way. Mm, Totally, totally agree. And it's interesting how... Everyone's heard it. Everyone said, you know, get this support, you know, and get someone to, to kick your ass when you're, and you're talking rubbish, you know. But most people still don't, which is, and again, in the small business space, it's, it's so, so frustrating. I've been in business over 33 years now. First 16 or 17, I didn't ask and I sucked because I was had my head up the backside of my businesses and they were basically killing me. And as soon as I went, hey, can someone give me a bit of support here? Someone who's been there and done it. It was just like this sudden shift, this sudden change in perspective, in ability for me to step out of the situation, out of the emotion of the situation and actually assess it unemotionally, strategically and go, yep, I was a bit of a dick there. I need to make sure I don't do that again in the way I was communicating to my team, right? And rather than being in it and amongst it and stressed out, a lot of the listeners that you know follow me and, and Boo and stuff are in the small business space. And it is challenging i think they don't have the resources around them of you know the big corporates to give them you know leadership courses and all sort of stuff as well what are the shared superpowers of great leaders that anyone else could take and apply yeah i think the number one shared superpower which i i like to speak about a lot and have observed in the thousands and thousands of leaders that i've worked with and coached and talked to is empathy particularly cognitive but also emotional empathy as defined by by dan coleman which is Cognitive empathy is really just the ability to pause for a second and and understand what it might be like to walk in someone else's shoes. So, okay, what might Sean be going through based on what I know about him? 
and most effective leaders that I've encountered and had the pleasure of working with are very, very, very good at holding multiple perspectives based on who they're interacting with and the team that they're working with. And that is to me empathy is I'm understanding what it might be like to be my customer, to be Sean, to be Boo, to be Pete. And then based on all of that, I can make a decision to move forward. So to answer your question about how do small business leaders think about that without access to resources? I mean, I think empathy is, if it is, which I believe it is, about understanding what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes. The easiest way to figure that out, I think, is to ask. You don't have to literally ask, hey, what's it like to walk in your shoes? But if you approach someone with this posture of curiosity, just like you two are doing with me in this podcast, and ask questions and hold space for the answer, that's practicing empathy. And what you'll learn to the point about feedback is you might have a blind spot that you didn't realize you had. You might actually have an insight from the person that you've asked the question of that you realize you can apply to your business. So I could talk about it for days, just like imposter syndrome, and it's multifaceted. It has benefits all throughout business and work and life and leadership. And it really just comes down to, can I be curious? Can I ask questions? Can I hold space? And I think the other thing to add to that is that how I see it is empathy is not about you. So a lot of people, they're trying to empathize but still make it about themselves. It doesn't work. You've got to remove yourself from the equation. And as you said, look at all the key stakeholders, the key people involved and go, right, what is each individual and what's the dynamic between the individuals that allows me to see in an empathetic way what's actually going on? And, and you need to step out of yourself to do that. I think people try and do it, but still with, um, I suppose, self-serving intention and, and it really doesn't land. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. right. I need to be empathetic, must behave in an empathetic way. To do. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, what is like it a- like to walk in your shoes? Yeah, yeah. People think of it as a hack and I really don't like that. It's not a hack. It's a practice. It's a skill. It's something to cultivate and practice every day. And you have to mean it. You have to give a crap. You can't pretend to be empathetic. It doesn't work. People will pick it up. People will feel that lack of authenticity and and complete lack of genuine approach and energy coming from you. I mean, without a doubt. So there's one of the superpowers. What what other superpowers do you see in, in great leaders in having worked with so many? Yeah, I think humility, which ties into what we talked about around imposter syndrome, is someone who's willing to say, I don't have all the answers and I'm feeling like a bit of a fraud or a bit of a phony. And so I would love the support of this person, this person, this person. Actually admitting to yourself and to the people around you that you don't need to or don't have all the answers and then having the curiosity, empathy, generosity, whatever you want to call it, to actually call on the other people in your team to help them help you. So there's, there's a humility that is just like fundamental. This is a really interesting insight, I think, is we go through a transition from being a doer to a leader, all right? So somewhere in there, you've got to realize that that just happened. And I was reading a statistic a few years ago where like a recruitment company did a survey and 69% of people said, my boss is in that role for themselves, not for me. So when do you think is a good trigger for a leader and, and what can they practice to go from being technically competent in a role and being promoted because of that technical competency, particularly sales and marketing, right? Or sales. Yeah, you're great at sales. You've got the biggest book, mate. And then all of a sudden you're the sales manager and everyone's like, hey, but all this person's doing is taking all my sales. How do you know when you become a leader? No one tells you. You, you, you get a role, but they're like, okay, oh, here's a sales technique. Here's how you do sales and here's what we're going to do. Okay, now you're a leader. How do we make these transitions? What you describe is actually a red flag, which is leadership is a choice. Leadership is not something that is bestowed upon you. So you could make someone a manager. You could put them in a senior position. That doesn't make them a leader. They have to want to 
decide and then act like a leader. So I think if leadership is a choice, that means you don't have to be in a certain position, which is actually great. That's why we have grassroots movements because people choose to lead, choose to create change, choose to enroll others in that. And the flip side, the dangerous part of that, which is where a lot of my work comes in, is someone who goes, I just got put into this really senior position. I have 20 people and I have absolutely no idea how to lead them. And I think it's sort of unfortunate that I have a lot of work in this space because I'd like to think that more leaders or more people in those senior positions would already have the skill set to be leaders. I think that person that gave that person that role probably had the same experience, that they were just thrown into it and they're like, well, they did that to me, so I'm just going to do it to you. It's a reward. It's not actual it's leadership. Not. You're actually saying, well, I, I could just pay you 50 grand more a year and you just keep being the best technique. But the only way I can reward you is to put you up into this pay scale. And therefore, now you're a leader. And one of the, one of the things that, that I work on with the people that I work with is to help them define their definition of leadership. Because I think too many people think that it's like, oh, now I'm in this role. I've gotten this promotion. I need to act like a leader well I'm in that role and then they go out and they get blind with their mates and they do stupid crap and then it comes back and bites them in the ass yeah. but to me leadership is the skin that we wear everywhere in every situation and so people need to go through the process of defining what that actually means for them so if they could fast forward 30 40 50 years be a fly on the wall and, and to watch someone read a eulogy at their own funeral what would they want people to say about them right oh he's a bit of a joker and he got pissed every weekend and you know, it was, it was he had really crap dad jokes or something right but um the whole ability for someone to go well who do i aspire to be because then if someone steps into that leadership role they now have a yardstick to measure themselves by that okay well okay now i'm out of my depth i'm an imposter but this is who i want to be and i know in the past mine was like bigger richer you know blah 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 it was all ego driven but in the last seven years i've had the same definition which is humble authentic and vulnerable that's me that's how i want to be seen as a leader and i use that as my yardstick i measure it after podcasts after meetings after speaking events did i show up humble authentic and vulnerable and i'll stress test that because that helps me when i am feeling like the imposter or being the imposter and doing something new is as long as i keep showing up as those three things that's me being myself if people don't like me i'm okay with that as long as I'm being me and they don't like me. If I'm pretending to be someone else and they don't like it, well, that's just stupid. So I think that ties into people actually defining what leadership means for them. You know, who do they aspire to be? Yeah. I really like the, the definition that Seth Godin has given before is a leader creates the conditions for others to choose new actions. I love that definition because it, it speaks to generosity it speaks to empathy and it speaks to empowerment of the people around you and so i think your definition would even fit within that sean which is okay so if i'm creating the conditions for others to choose new actions who do i need to be in order to do that well i need to be authentic i need to be generous i need to be curious and like all of that comes within that definition i think about that a lot clearly seth's a marketer and copywriter so he can say it more eloquently than i can <laughs> conceptually about the human periscope what symbology are we creating here? What mental imagery? Where's the leverage? Is, is it, are we looking at a perspective issue? Where's the human periscope fit into me wanting to be the best version of myself, the best leader and transforming my team? It's sort of literal and figurative. So I'm six foot seven, which means that I, I literally see things that a lot of people can't. And that's what a periscope does, right? We use a periscope if we're in a submarine, common example, to see above the surface, to see something that we can't see at the moment. And so what I realized in coming up with you know, a brand and, and my, naming my business 
was that a really great coach, a really great speaker, a really great leader, whatever you want to call it, really is all about helping others see things that they might not be able to see. Now that comes in the form of feedback, that comes in the form of a question like we talked about, comes in the form of a story, it might come in the form of a podcast or a blog or whatever. So to me, that's just like centering everything that I do. Everything that I do is about trying to help others see things they can't see. And so that's the human periscope idea, the metaphor, if you like. Love it. I think it's, a, it's fantastic. It's really hard. There's like two frames of mind. There's immersed in doing things and the ability to step back and see things. And, and it's really hard to know where you're at because when you're immersed, you lose the awareness. And then when you have the awareness, nothing's getting done. So it's yeah. like this, that ability to constantly re-engage with uh, perspective, I think, is super important. What's your periscope telling you, Sean? Again, I, I really like that analogy, especially you know, as a, a mentor, speaker, etc. the concept of getting people to see something. And I know that the feedback I get, I haven't put it in that language, but the feedback I get is when you see that person's light bulb go off. It's like, bing, that's why I do it, because I see that someone's got it and they've got a new viewpoint that they're going to take away and use for the rest of their life. That's such a powerful, powerful frame. So you've learned a lot in your journey of working, especially at a, such a level of leadership, and that involves human psychology and understanding, having your own high level of emotional intelligence and all that sort of stuff. So from what you've learned, if you can go back to a younger version of yourself and give yourself some friendly advice, what would that advice it's one of those tricky questions because you wonder if it would then alter the course of the, the journey that you had, which helped you get to who you are. I would say one of the many things that truly unlocked many different paths for me was when I realized that I had a choice and that I needed to choose, again, back to leadership, I needed to choose to be a leader and I could choose to be a leader. So if I go back years and years and years, I was working in corporates and startups. I was, you know, climbing the corporate ladder and I was very successful at that. I was very good at that. And it got to a point where I sort of had this realization of, okay, I want to do more meaningful work with more interesting people. And then I'd sort of sit there and twiddle my thumbs and go, why isn't anyone presenting me with that opportunity to do more meaningful work with more interesting people? I've climbed the ladder to this point. Where's my next opportunity? And I got quite impatient and I wasn't necessarily a great leader at the time. And through an online workshop through reading lots of books, podcasts, surrounding myself with the right people. The short version of the story is I realized that, you know, Seth Godin calls it pick yourself. I think James Altucher has called it choose yourself. But this idea that you can decide to step into that leadership, you can decide to make the change as opposed to sitting back and waiting for it. But Pete, it's too hard. That's the hard choice. I know, I know. Well, this is what I was going to say. It's actually something that I still need to remember every day, every week. I'm like, oh, why isn't that latest you know, podcast doing as well as the other one? Oh, I guess we haven't promoted it. We haven't talked about it. Who have I shared it with? You know, so it's like it's constantly coming back to no one's going to just like gift you your version of success. You actually have to choose to show up and, and sort of nudge towards it. I've been working with this uh, leadership group the last few days and we're sort of talking about stories of life. And, and one of the coaches there said, if someone comes up to me and goes, oh, look, I've just put 200000 aside. I'm really going to invest in this journey. She's like, no, you're going to quit. With the person that comes up and goes, I'm trying to pay the mortgage. I'm living week to week, but I just really want to crack this so I can have a business and survive. It's like, yep, you're going to go far. Destitution is, is a great motivator. Yeah, being hungry, right? It's a great point. Like on, on the same, you sit there and you're like, Ah, revenue's going down. Oh, what's going on? And you realize you've just off the back of riding the wave of the last time you actually went out and did the promotion stuff. And you're like, oh, I've got to get back on the grind. 
It's impossible to do it all, all the time. Totally. And the more you surround yourself with great people, and, and Sean and I have managed to develop a wonderful partnership here, is, is to be able to like go, hey, oh, man, something's going wrong. Have you thought about, yeah, okay, that's it. That's what I'm not doing right. And, and lift as a, as a unit rather than be stuck all by yourself. Yeah. And just to, I think in what you share is such a like amazing acknowledgement for anyone listening, which is, of course, there's going to be ups and downs. Of course, it's not going to be smooth sailing. Of course, you don't learn that lesson that I wish I had learned. 10 years ago and then go, okay, I'm cool. I don't need to learn any more lessons now. Like it's, it's a practice that I come back to every day. Yeah. It was building this checklist, trying to think of, oh, let's, let's come up with a checklist of, of running your business. And I'm at about 180 <laughs> checkpoints. And I'm like, no wonder no one knows how to run a business. Even if you did one thing a day, that's the whole year gone. And that's, you've just gone through the checklist once. Like it's, yeah. it's a, a total juggling act. But we have, to, we have to go through it. As I say, you know, the, my favorite expression there is that a you know, calm seas doesn't make for a great sailor. So um, if you're just moseying along and you know, there's nothing challenging you, then you're not going to evolve. And I, I deliberately don't use the word change. So many people turn, oh, I want to change. It's like, well, no, you don't. You don't change. Change is going from one thing to another. We need to evolve from wherever we're at. We've already got a, ba- a base. We've already had all those experiences. We're now moving from there to the next point, which is an evolution, not a change. And that is difficult. You know, that ability to evolve ourselves, to break old habits first to then be able to create new ones, that's difficult. To be able to be comfortable with being the imposter that's difficult. It's still, I know, I mean, Pete, you probably feel the same. I know Boo feels the same. I feel the same. Is we still feel it. It's still the same. It hasn't changed. It's just that our decision to be comfortable with that discomfort is allowing for that much faster level of evolution and growth and ultimately impact, which is what all three of us do in our lives, where it's about impacting other people. And if we're not practicing what we preach and not developing and growing and, and evolving, then we can't make that level of impact continuously at a higher level and higher level and aspire to that. Awesome. Pete, that's been fantastic. I think we have to stop, but we never will. So that's a good thing about scheduling something after a podcast. Otherwise, it'd be here for four hours, as you said. And your battery's probably running low because you haven't put your laptop on the charger. Uh, so thanks so much for spending time with me and Sean today. And that wraps up another episode of The Few. Thank you to our partners, Afterburner, for team building, development and alignment. We understand now how important it is to have the right people around you. Get them on board with where you want to go. Momentum Media, the largest industry publisher in the country, connecting your business to the Australian community. ICMI, Australia's premier speaker bureau, representing the few that do fulfill their life's purpose. And finally, Sean's Inner Circle, the business coaching organization for small and medium enterprises looking to make that next step. Thanks again for listening in and downloading today. Please leave a review on whatever platform you are currently listening to this podcast and reach out to our partners who can help you make the transition to the few. Really, really enjoyed the conversation. You've given me a couple of little uh, nuggets there or little puzzle pieces that have helped clarify and give additional context into some of the interesting uh, world of, of leadership, of being an imposter and being comfortable and being okay with it, and no longer using the term soft and hard when it comes to skills. I'm going to be using real or human, human skills and technical skills because that's a positive spin on it. So I've, I've learned a whole lot out of this, which is awesome, and I hope our listeners have as well. Not to mention investing in your two-step, mate. Yeah, the two-step, that's it. I can remember those two steps. But Pete, really appreciate it, mate. I hope to hope we get a chance to, to chat to you again, but you know, thanks again. 
and I'm sure uh, it's going to be a lot of gold nuggets taken away by, by our listeners. Yeah, thanks, Pete. That was awesome, man. This has been The Few Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The Few Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of the few. We'll see you next week.